Hey there, and welcome back, all you King of the Ride podcast listeners and viewers. That's right, we are a video cast. Head on over to Ted King on YouTube. I still find that strange to say that I have a YouTube channel, but check it out. Check out this, this episode for your visual entertainment. This episode in particular has some incredible video clips, hilarious little snippets. I just wrapped up editing it. It is well worth your while to check that one out. Our guest today, Jeff Kabush. Surely you know his name. You might even remember his amazing mutton chops. Jeff is a three-time Olympian, 15-time national champion. He's adept in, in literally all aspects of bike racing. He can tear your legs off in a cross-country race as much as you're going to see him at an enduro. These days, he is dabbling in gravel. Jeff does it all, including winning hill climb running races. Yeah, independent of the bike push-up competitions, going head-to-head, ladies and gentlemen, with Yao Ming at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Stay tuned for that story because it is a stunner. We're going to explore the the genesis of the Dopers Suck campaign, how it all came about, how it was well-received, how it was sometimes not so well-received. We'll talk contemporary sports, hockey, of course, being that Jeff is a Canadian. We'll talk about tricking out car tires, and the absolutely crazy adventure that is bike racing in Latin America at the Tour of Cuba. We're going to talk about how his career has spanned from the year 2000 and before as an Olympian to still kicking ass and gravel in the year 2020. How he won an early season race this year in 2020, and that might be a season highlight in a year that is nebulous. And of course, naturally, we're going to talk about how he's handling a global lockdown. No more spoilers. Quick clerical check-in, though. DIY Gravel continues to gain momentum. We have well over 2,000 submissions. Nearly 2,000 of you are participating in this pure, pure gravel community event. We're celebrating the original event day. Don't forget, as events get pushed deeper into the 2020 calendar or off the schedule entirely, I want to pay attention to that original event day. So we just wrapped up Belgian Waffle Ride last week. I rode my 140 miles. Laura rode her 140 miles. Ansel was there to document it. We went big, of course. You don't have to go on the massive ride. Just hopping on your bike to to show that you're a part of this community. That is how you participate. Super easy rules to play and win. Visit IamTedKing.com slash DIY Gravel. For details, come on board. Please pardon any very cute cries that you might hear from this conversation as Hazel is anxious in the background. And let's keep it to that. Folks, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for watching if you do that too. Wishing you a continued safe quarantine now that we are into May. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest, Jeff Kabush. talking to Jeff Kabush, three-time Olympian. Um, let's set the scene. It is Beijing. The year is 2008. And you're with the basically the biggest character on planet Earth. You find yourself with Yao Ming. Walk me through a pretty amazing video that involves uh, Shimei. Or no, sorry. Shimei is a different story, but it's also a great story. 
When yeah. how do you meet up? That'll <laughs> be the next one. How a do few you, a few beer stores in my life. Exactly. How do you meet up with Yao Ming and how do you end up having a beverage in hand at that moment? Yeah, I mean, funny story. I mean, Beijing I was kind of like at the peak of my career, but I mean, it was kind of a bummer. I had a couple mechanicals in the race. So I was actually pretty down. Uh, we're kind of in and out for five days. The race went pretty, pretty crap. I don't know. I still finished 20th, which isn't much to write a home, home about in the such a small field. And I was like, ah, I don't even know if I want to go to closing ceremonies, but that ended up being my Olympic moment. But <laughs> I mean, yeah. 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 Oh, man. I mean, I always, I've always seen him around. I mean, not time, but at those events and I always felt bad for him because I mean, he it was in China. He was like one of the biggest names, uh, representing the Olympics there. And sure. you just see him in the village and everyone's like, can I take a picture? Can I take a picture? Can I take a picture? Um, and so leading into, went to the, uh, the closing ceremonies and, the closing ceremonies for anyone, it's quite a bit more boring than the Olympic or the opening ceremonies. It's a lot of speeches and, mm-hmm. uh, we're all just gathered there mingling on the infield and, uh, me and teammate, Canadian teammate to race the mountain bike Seamus. We were kind of bored. And so we decided to go look for some drinks, which involved kind of escaping the infield, uh, walking up all these stairs to like the concession stand, up in the, the general public and the beers were only about a buck each. So we, uh, grabbed a tray and bought as many as we could, probably 15 or 20 carried them on a tray, snuck into the infield. And I think that was probably one of the first trips saw Yao Ming kind of look tired and sitting there with his friends. I was like, yeah, you want a beer? He's like, Oh no, but Sing Tao, that's the best beer. They yeah. sponsored and fast forward like about an hour later, and we made, you know, five or six trips and he was getting really tired sitting on the ground with his friends. And I saw him again. I was like, Hey, yeah, want a beer? And he's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and <I> ended him <laughs> a beer. And then I grabbed mine and just slammed it and threw my hands in the air. I'm like, ah, oh, beat you. And he's like, Oh, okay. Another one. Let's go and do official. And that's when, uh, <laughs> that's when the super crappy, eight second YouTube clip got filmed by a friend, uh, pretty close photo finish there, but yeah. And then, uh, anyway, had another shotgun contest and then traded pins with him. So I think I still have my accreditation with the Chinese pin from Yao Ming. And it's pretty funny cause he was known as a pretty straight laced dude and a bunch of the like, uh, celebrity sites in China kind of picked up the video and, uh, I think it was a pretty positive spin for no his kidding. image to see to yeah. see Yao. So it got like yeah picked up on all like the I don't know whatever gossip sports websites and stuff. So anyway, that was my that was my 2008 Olympic moment. That was outstanding, um, and not to mention that's better than any selfie you would have taken. Like you take a selfie <laughs> with Yao and you put it out on social media in 2008, and 28 people would have seen it. At last check, and it will make the video content that we're gonna that I'm gonna put out here two hundred thousand views, man. That's outstanding. Yeah, <laughs> who's monetizing that? <laughs> I don't know. It's on my. I actually just had to rescue it. It's not on my YouTube account. It's on my Max Weiss carry. So I actually just had to like. I found it in an old email from the the guy who shot it and had to 
find some uh, app on the web to convert it from yeah. like WMV to whatever MP4 so I can actually still have a copy. Heroic. It was amazing. Um, okay, so I, I, I aired earlier pointing out yes. the Chimay Blue. Coach K, some might think yes. of segueing uh, a Yao Ming story and mentioning Coach K and you think basketball, but no, I'm talking about Coach Kabush. Revolutionary training techniques. Now, now it is admittedly a very forward-thinking cyclocross training campaign. Um, mm-hmm. Walk me through that one because I, I just watched it prior to, to calling you up here and it still absolutely puts me in hysterics. Yes, my very amateur videography, I think, kind of adds to the humor. But yeah, I don't know where I came up with that idea, but it actually took quite a bit of preparation to pull that off. You know, I, I didn't want to have to do, you know, extra takes. I wanted to nail it on the first time. So uh-huh. I was definitely practicing. And well, it involves one Chimay 50 push ups and another Chimay all in under 60 seconds. And I think it goes back, I don't know, like, I seriously think any, you know, mountain biker with their grain of salt or whatever should be able to do 50 (laughs) push-ups. So I've always advocated for push-ups and, I don't know, always tried to use sense of humor to connect with people. But yeah, I think I I had that idea for probably two or three years, but I finally got around to the fall and the right time I could pull it off. And uh, The commentary is outstanding. Um, yeah, I was pretty psyched. I was able actually to find those like, yeah, pictures of Sven Nice there. It mm-hmm. really kind of added to the montage. Yeah. So, no, it's, it's and, uh, outstanding. Yeah. I actually, I want to do, uh, at first I wanted to kind of, you know, shotgun cans, but I was struggling to find a safe, effective way to do it quite as quickly. And I thought the Belgian beer would be more of a tie-in. So I might pull, eventually pull out one of my old, another old character's Diener you might from way back when and do uh, another version of the, of the workout. This sounds like a excellent idea. Um, not to promote consumption over consumption. Um, I've never lost a shotgun competition, my friend. Oh, I, I'm not that, I'm not that good. I'm just okay. steady. Got it. Got it. Well, at some point, um, yeah, I'd love to take, my throat see what you like got. <laughs> Ah, okay. You're obviously very multifaceted in these training techniques. Like 50 push-ups is pretty legit. I've been, I've been doing my, one of my coronavirus uh, distractions is I have no idea why this headline came up in YouTube, but it said, this is what happened when I did a hundred burpees a day for 30 days. And I didn't actually watch the video. But there's something about that that stuck with me. I'm like, I've never done a burpee in my life. And so now that it's May 1st, I'm literally 16 days into it. Nice. I don't, I don't feel any better. I don't know. I don't have a, like a before and after picture. Your push-ups are amazing. Another thing that I think absolutely makes you stand alone: grouse grind mountain run. <laughs> like, I don't know a single cyclist who who enjoys running or can do it well, let alone win a running race. So. WTF, like, tell me about the grouse grind mountain run. Well, it's kind of another thing I always advocate is multi-sport, like, especially for young kids, I always, you know, advocate not to focus on 
you know, one sport, whether mm-hmm. it be cycling or whatever, too early. So me and I always did everything growing up, running being one of them. Mm-hmm. But even when I, I mean, I started my career, I always like to do something else in the fall. Little known fact, I was a triathlete a couple of falls for Xterra. Okay, I mean, <sighs> that was close. The main, the main motivation was going to Hawaii. So, <laughs> gotta have your inspiration. Okay, I actually had a better world championship Xterra finish than mountain bike for a long time. So, I finished ninth there one fall. Mm-hmm. Also, ran a, a couple marathons in the fall just for wow. fun, just a challenge. What kind of times you putting down? Well, the first first one, my goal was just to break three hours. So I like did that by like ten seconds, oh, and then I did it another two or three years later. And the, that time, I decided I was going to push myself a little bit more. Um, and I think I ran just under two forty five. Oh, brutal! Well done. But anyway, yeah. Uh, fast forward to the gross grind. I mean, it's not you can hardly call it a a run because it's 700 meters vertical, two and a half thousand feet straight up in under half an hour. You basically go jog a little bit straight to max on a stair climber for a long time, but then you run around a little bit at the top. And it was always a, I was living in North Van. I don't know, I lived in North Van when I moved back to Canada for probably three years. And it was always a fun workout when I had, was just too busy a day, I'd go do the gross grind and it was actually quite a lucrative half hour, a gross grind. There was actually 1500 bucks and some gift certificates on the line. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't even really know I was, who I was running against, but some, there was actually some pretty accomplished, uh, mountain rudder schemo guys yeah. that I beat, uh, and, uh, great photo of me on the finish line with them bent over. Exactly. But, That's what I was going to point out. Like on the start line, okay, there you are dashing off with everybody else and you look like a runner as much as anybody else. And it's at the finish line where you're just like gazing off in the distance and these dudes behind you are completely keeled over. <laughs> like, sorry, fellas. <laughs> I think I'd had 30 or 40 seconds to recover a bit, but yeah, yeah, that was a great, great capture. But no, I mean, as I still like to jog a little bit. I don't I mean, I couldn't compete in a, more of a flat run, but running uphill is pretty similar to the, the cycling muscles. So sure. Definitely nice. Uh, that one, you can take the gondola back down so you don't have to smash your muscles running downhill. Yeah. So that's why it was a nice, easy half hour hard workout. Perfect. On a busy day. Perfect. Uh, and how does the course actually format? Like, are you going upstairs or are you like, does it funnel down to a staircase or a wide staircase or how the heck does everybody make it on up? Yeah, I mean, it starts at the base of the gondola in the parking lot. So you have uh, about 100 meters across the parking lot into a kind of steep gravel trail for probably the first, I don't know, three or four minutes. And then it gets into more stepped gravel, wood steps, rock. It's almost like an uphill scramble for the majority until you get to the ski resort at the top. And then the last couple minutes maybe is on a kind of access road around to the front of the lodge. Brutal. But it's, yeah, it's just like, man, you're just, it's, you go like a minute or two and you're basically straight to max, just hands on knees, mm-hmm. str- like scrambling straight up the hill. But it's super popular. Um, you can get like um, timing chips and you can swipe at the bottom and swipe at the top and there's leaderboards all year. Um, 
There's an app for it, and so it's quite popular. Oh, jeez. Vancouver. How yeah. close is it to, to Vancouver itself? Well, just on the North Shore, North Van. So, uh, I mean, yeah, it's a beautiful view from the top over Vancouver and the nice. water. Um, if you're in Vancouver, you look to the North Shore, and you can – there's night skiing, so you can see the lights in the windmill. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, right on the edge of town there, so super close. That's sweet. Um, so staying on topic of being multidisciplined. Okay, I did some homework here. You're you're on the mountain bike. You got three time Olympian, nine time um, cross country national title. You won a World Cup. You are nine time World Cup podium finisher. Um, let's jump to cyclocross. I think you have five national titles. You have one marathon title. Backtracking to the mountain bike. And of course you do some, you do some of this gravel stuff. So you got Iceman, you got, you got a handful of other races. You got, uh, you won one of very few races that are going to exist this year. Yeah. Highlight. I was kind of saying that might be the highlight of my season. Ironic. Well, foreshadowing maybe. Great. Season opener (laughs) is the highlight and we can get back to that. But, but the one thing that is almost missing from your list of Palmares is the road. And then when you go deep into Jeff Kabush, you raced on Jittery Joe's in 2005 and then, what, Symmetric 6 and 7? Like, this is yeah. Jeff Kabush the road. No, the, those are some some good memories. I mean, yeah, the, uh, connected with, I don't know how, I guess Max is, was one of my, always one of my major sponsors dating back. And, uh, I mean, Jittery Joe's being based in Georgia where Max is, there was a connection with Michael Rice, who was then the manager of uh, Jittery Joe's and, had some fun there for a couple of years. Yeah, doing um, tour Georgia, which was massive at that time with with uh, Postal there and you know mm-hmm. who everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and got to do some of the big Philly week stuff. Did Philly a couple times and uh, some of the other East Coast classics. And then yeah, on some metrics, got to do some really crazy events too. Uh, with the all-stars there, man, like all the top Canadians at the time came out of that team. That team was just a bit ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I did like tour Chihuahua, which was a crazy experience. And probably the most crazy one was tour Cuba, which was 14 stages in 13 days. Oh, uh, no rest day down there. Yeah. Down there for three weeks. And it was just nuts. Like I got sick in the middle. It Swain Tuft was our, our team leader there. And, for one, I mean the Cuban the Cubans had uh, ten provincial teams, one for each province, <laughs> and then they had two national teams. Um, so it's seventy two Cubans against us. But the <laughs> the sketchiest part was, uh, I mean, there's a bunch of doped up Italians, which made it really hard. Um, I can't remember the team that uh, I know that Joe Pap was on. Yeah. Anyway, it was that squad oh, who man. came over. But, uh, I mean, yeah, a couple of stories. I remember maybe stage A was a mountain. And you know how usually if you're the, in the group, Pato, you get pushed up the mountains. Well, tour Cuba, you got pushed, pushed off the front. Uh, and I was in the, I was in the lead group and all the fans kept pushing the Cubans off the front and I was getting pissed off. So I, <clears throat> when they came to push a Cuban, I'd grab onto their Jersey and they'd start swinging at me. And, they, and then they'd come up and pretend that they were going to push us. 
Uh-huh. But instead of pushing us, they'd steal our water bottles. Uh, good Holy banana tanker. And then the next, the next day was, uh, I think stage nine was a time trial. And Swain being an amazing time trialist, he took the lead on that stage. 30K time trial. And we had a two-hour lunch break in a school gymnasium. And then the, and then the afternoon, it was supposed to be like a 150-kilometer stage, but it ended up being a 170-kilometer stage. Right. Surprise. And, uh, I mean, the Italians were just attack, attack, attack. And we, we all rode on the front until we exploded and left Swain alone. And he held on to the, the yellow jersey. We ended up in some small town and with no food and a two hour transfer. And in the end we ended up holding on. I think we bribed the Mexicans to help us. We gave them a time trial frame and some, some nutritional, some like <laughs> some gels and bars and they like helped defend against Italians and ended up winning that race. But Oh man, that was like uh eye opener what the body can do. I mean, yeah, you've done grand tour and you know how like, man, you just right. push through somehow survive and keep on going. Yeah, everything you just described is is pretty damn accurate. Even down to like the cross section of Italians and uh, uh, what you're seeing in Cuba. Like there are plenty of times you're racing, you see you see the sign that says 20k to go. You're in the freaking Giro, and then it turns out to be in 30k. It's like why can we not get that simple aspect of the race race dialed? Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I love I loved racing on the road. Um, love the tactics. I mean, I love. Um, some of the mountain bike events like Iceman or Sea Otter where we get to use the tactics. But I mean, I thought about switching over, but I mean, I have a lot of respect for the guys did, but I mean, I saw what was happening there with, with postal at tour Georgia. And I was like, well, I could survive, but I just love the mountain bike life, the lifestyle, the mountain bike and knew I could have success there, even though mountain bike can have its own issues during that period too. But no, I mean, I, I wish I could have done, more road in Europe. I would have loved to been able to do that in my career for sure. And big fan. Was your entry into into cycling on the mountain bike, or or was it a little bit road and mountain? Pretty much, pretty much mountain. Yeah, I mean, there was um, when I was young, like there was a local club in Comox Valley where I grew up, and I do the local local road races. But for sure, it was um, mountain bike and got into the the Canada cup mountain bike series as a junior I started doing well. And yeah, ended up traveling across the country as a junior. Those are some good stories of, I don't know how my parents would let me, but I mean, yeah, I was 18 and I like packed up back then I'd raced downhill too. I raced downhill as a junior and cross country said, uh-huh. pack up my two bikes and my camping gear and like flew to Toronto and caught a cab to the race venue and camped out for the week by myself making craft dinner and tuna, you know, oatmeal <laughs> in the morning. And then somehow I got a ride with my doctor's friend back to the airport and out to Nova Scotia and like camped up for the week for three days before I saw anyone else show up at nationals. And, but yeah, that year as a junior, I got to go to call qualified for world championships, 95 in Germany, which was just a uh, insane experience. Once again, flew over by myself and caught a train down to the, black forest and had to figure out how to phone the guest house and talk to German and wait for two hours for the national team to come pick me up. And my bank card didn't work. So thank God my high school buddy was over there and lent me Mm -hmm. some, some Deutschmarks to make it through the week. 
but I mean, I did well in Canada as a junior on a mountain bike, but a world, I think, uh, I mean, that was back, countries didn't really have a limit. So there'd be like 20 juniors from each country. And I, uh, I out sprinted two people on the finish for 99th place. Oh, so nice. That's another story. I tell the juniors, like, don't worry about how you do as a uh-huh. junior. There's still lots of time, but no, I was hooked after that experience and, um, came back and moved down to Victoria where I started going to school, did an engineering degree there. Um, which is definitely tough to finish off. It was a co-op program. So I did actually do five, uh, semesters of work experience. And Jeez. luckily I connected, uh, with a guy who actually sponsored kind of the team I was on. He ran a aluminum fabrication engineering firm. So I was able to do all my work experience there, but yeah, I was working, you know, 32, 35 hours a week and, training and the worst was because of the co-op program it alternated school in the summer so man yeah it was brutal a couple of summers i was taking four courses and trying to to race but yeah finished that off after seven and a half years um along the way i finally had my breakout and started making a living halfway through my degree Mm -hmm. but so that was hard to finish off the school but got it done and since 2003 i graduated and just been racing since then but yeah wicked so i mean you you hit it a couple minutes ago like you in racing through the the span of time that you've raced you raced through a pretty gnarly era um road has certainly gone through its its trials and tribulations to say it very lightly um and mountain too i mean how as a sport that has chewed up and spat people out how have you been able to I mean, persevere is, is as good a word as any. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting looking back because um, the choices I made and um, hard to say why I did when I was surrounded by guys who made different choices, but I guess I was always kind of more, you know, internally focused, uh, intrinsically motivated. My sister would say, who's a kind of sports psych, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but I think I always just really enjoyed the process and I think I was lucky. I mean, for one, I had school going on the side and racing. So I was, had, I was able to just kind of develop at my own, own pace. And I think I was a bit, a bit naive of what was going around me, um, for a while. And, uh, I mean, I had, I think I had success. I mean, kind of worked through the late nineties and I mean, I, I can't believe how motivated I was back then. I mean, like I said, when I was going to school and working and I'd like race back from working from seven to two, put on my lights and ride for a couple hours with these BLT lead acid batteries. I'd ride until the last (laughs) minute I could turn them on and then turn them on and they'd barely last an hour 45. And sometimes I'd be riding home in the street lights and then go again the next day. Um, so, I mean, I was, I didn't have much of a life back then. I was pretty focused on school and training and, um, working really hard. And in 2000, I kind of broke through and made the Olympic team and had a really top result at Olympics, finished ninth there. Um, and I think a lot of that was due to the fact that there was a rumored EPO test at the time. (laughs) So, So... did you start I that rumor? You're like, you guys are all screwed. Guess what? There's a test. No, but, 
but it was definitely a breakthrough result. Ninth there, and I signed a, signed a contract with Kona at that time for three years, which kind of carried me through that period. And I had a bunch of, you know, decent results, fourths and fifths. And I think at the time, Kona was expecting more from me, but hmm. um, um, didn't renew my contract. And I think later they realized probably why I wasn't able to achieve as many podiums <laughs> as I was hoped, but got me through to 2004. Um, and even then, like I still can't believe some of the results I had back then, like some top tens at some world cups. And I think it was a lot due to the fact that I, I mean, grew up in BC and was really strong technically. Um, look back at some of those results and the guys I was surrounded with is, is pretty nuts. But, uh, I mean, I was lucky. I was good enough to kind of, make it through that period i guess and unfortunately like a lot of my friends couldn't get contracts or had to quit Mm -hmm. um but i made it through 2004 and graduated from school and um actually after that kona contract i really had no idea about a contract um kona didn't wasn't going to renew it and i was through to january without a contract and um i was just kept on working hard and kind of uh Max's team came through at the last minute. They were going to merge with Giant at the time, and that fell through. So they were going to carry on with their own team and were looking for riders. And that started uh, a long relationship, still still working with Maxis, rode for their team for seven years. But yeah, and then 2004, I really kind of had a breakout season domestically and um, had great support since then. And I mean, yeah, just feel feel lucky to kind of make it through that period and certainly for sure looking back it's really nice to have no regrets and uh obviously i was pretty vocal about anti-doping and um how it's spoken about it and uh it's definitely nice to have that that platform and um people can't say well you don't know mm-hmm. what you would have done i mean i was there and made different decisions and happy to be pretty outspoken about it whenever I have the opportunity and and how much how much do you see at the time like at what point do you begin being outspoken about it um is it is it i mean this is also in an era that, that like we don't have the platform that we have now as as athletes so when no. do you know something's going on and when do you start preaching it yeah like i said i mean i was still a bit naive uh, i mean i was through around 2000 2001 um, I was surrounded by Canadian guys. A lot of them have either tested positive or some of them haven't admitted everything, but, um, it was really tough. I think around that period, mm-hmm. cause I'd go out for training rides in Victoria back when I'd still train with the group and it was just insane. Like do I'd get, I mean, I didn't want to go full race pace, but I'd get dropped and I mean, do and be like six hours into a ride and it'd be going 40, 42 kilometers an hour and just be like, what the hell is going on? And I think what was really nice, uh, ex-girlfriend of one of the riders, like I was getting a bit frustrated. She told me like, there's a reason why you can't keep up. Um, cause she knew that all it took at that time was a credit card and FedEx to get some EPO. Yeah. And around that time I started training by myself, which, made things a lot easier mentally. Cause I think during that period, I was just like, 
I don't know. I'm never going to be able to do that. Cause it was just like training was train rides were just insane. Um, but I guess, I mean, I survived through that period and knew what was going on and was frustrated. But in 2000, I think, um, 2004, I guess at Sea Otter, I had a really close race with Philippe Merhog, Belgian. Um, you may have heard of it, came second to him there. And mm-hmm. later that year, he tested positive for EPO, mm-hmm. um, which was no surprise to anyone. And, um, after that incident, uh, um, me and, uh, I was spending some time in Boulder and a friend there, Brandon Dwight. We kind of made some t-shirts with some iron on letters that said doper suck. And first, Did you start first that? One, well, yeah, I was like, uh, dating, um, a girl on Gretchen in Boulder and living with Brandon. And we ironed on some letters onto yeah. a shirt first after Marog tested positive ward on some, a podium at a Norb up at Snowmass, And then, uh, yeah, Brandon kind of ran with that and made some t-shirts. And the next year at Sea Otter, I think I posted a little while ago, actually had some like official Doper Suck shirts. So kind of the year after uh, where I got beat by uh, Mirhog, I went up on the one one Sea Otter cross country the next year and went up on the podium and opened up my skin suit uh, with a Doper Suck shirt and then put on got the jersey and put it on over top of that. And then, so yeah, I mean, that in that, was a little controversy. I mean, I was controversial. Some people didn't like the message doper suck, but you know, I'd been affected by it. And, um, also like started a program with a little more positive spin with cycling Canada called race clean on your victory, kind mm-hmm. of a program to help promote clean sport. And that was important to me. We have a lot of good role models in Canada. And I mean, the message I wanted to give was, I mean, the worst, worst is like, that you finally start having success and everyone believes that you're on drugs too. So mm-hmm. I wanted to be vocal about it, but I also wanted to let kids know that, you know, you can have success at the highest level and mm-hmm. got some other great role models on board with that. Like Swain who really believe in and Catherine Pendrel and just advocate that message that, yeah, like cycling's brutal. It's, it's really hard, but you can, if you do it the right way, cause everyone second guesses whether they can make it, but mm-hmm. just speaking from the highest level, let kids know that, yeah, you, you, you can make the right decisions and still have success. And certainly feels good at this point in my career to look back and have no regrets or skeletons in the closet. Yeah. So. That's freaking awesome. Um, I mean, I've always, my, my entire professional career was on the road where, where you can end up being pretty robotic and, Yes, professional road racers, as much as you can slag on them for not having bike handling skills, like they're all very adept bike handlers. But it, it is nothing compared to a mountain biker, a professional cyclocross racer. Like the, so looking at from the from the perspective of of off road riding, there's sort of two entities there, right? It's like a huge, huge skill pool, and then your motor, how many watts you're going to put out, which can be enhanced. The first thing, the skill side, you can't enhance that. So, yeah, I mean, asking a, a professional mountain biker, how do you, you talked about growing up in BC and having, having adept skill. Like how do those two things mash up together? I mean, I certainly, I think a big part that I was able to survive was I had that technical side growing up in BC and I couldn't, I certainly couldn't compete 
and all courses. I mean, that's the nice thing about mountain bike. There's so many different interpretations of it. And during that really tough period where people are taking shortcuts, I could, I could still have success in, in certain venues and certain conditions where, I mean, yeah, I could use the technical skills in my head a bit more. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's why I dabbled in the road, but never switched over and have a ton of respect for guys that fought a good fight there. Cause it's, and I mean, I came, you know, growing up in Canada, very, you know, privileged, um, life, uh, growing up there. And it's, it's hard to judge things black and white, you know, growing up in Europe, Eastern Bloc, and some <laughs> people see cycling as just a job. Mm-hmm. They don't really give a fuck about mm-hmm. ethics. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's why I think some people took the doper suck message a little more negatively, but um, still felt it was important to be outspoken about how I feel about sport and the values of sport and choices everyone can make. Right on. And I guess what I'm, I mean, it's my own curiosity that's asking. It's like, when you see somebody who is extraordinary at cyclocross and mountain, mountain bike racing for, for not just race after race after race, but year after year doing the same thing and like completely kicking ass in a sport that has so much luck, like certainly road racing has luck, but, but to not roll a tire, to not pinch flat at the wrong time, like because yeah. all of, all of mountain and cyclocross races are, are so acute as opposed to being a stage race where you can make up a mistake. Like can, do you look at those extraordinary year after year results and do you see that from a skeptic's eye or do you see that as shoot that person's just like on another level and they're 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 that good no i mean i still think some of the performance you see are incredibly impressive for sure um there's a lot more than yeah just the motor i mean that being said i don't i have to look at everything a bit skeptically unless you i mean you can know a person really well but mm-hmm. you still don't know so it's i mean it's tough being a fan of the sport when you just when you see such amazing performances that are impressive regardless but um it just sucks i mean that yeah you still have to take everything with a grain of salt because you just you don't know mm-hmm. i mean unless you you're there with the person i mean yeah there's lots of instances where they're super nice guys but uh, make different decisions Mm -hmm. Um, but regardless it's still super impressive uh, watching some of the long strings and of success and uh, what people do on a bike regardless yeah well yeah i mean you hit it on the head like i'm a you and i are both fans of the sport and so you want to be a you want to be a fan obviously the sport has not done itself any huge favors and and it breeds skeptics um you grew up doing a bunch of sports and that's allowed you to be active and and you know be dexterous and know how to have a little hand-eye coordination do you watch contemporary sports do you watch football baseball basketball hockey um hockey for sure i mean being canadian yeah still even when i'm in the u.s fall out of bed in the bay area it's hard not to be a fan of golden state Mm-hmm. That was kind of my main high school sport was basketball. Mm-hmm. I was probably most focused on that until after high school. So watch that a bit. I mean, these days I really enjoy watching 
uh, Supercross, Motocross, Formula One. I mean, I'm just even the sports I'm not really interested in, like baseball or football. Is still interesting to see people perform under pressure. So, like when it comes down to the finals and the playoffs, I mean, don't follow some sports, but I'm a sports fan for sure, and like yeah. watching all kinds of stuff. I mean, hey. watch all the mountain bike stuff still for sure, even if I'm not at the World Cups. Yeah, and I think that that. I'm in the exact same boat and I just, I love sports and I love watching sports. And, and it's so funny that I think one of the biggest reasons that cycling has such a negative image is certainly, uh, some really bad eras in there, but then across sports, there are plenty of really bad eras and, and plenty of them were still in, but you know, cycling in my mind has done a really good job of exposing it and yeah. combating it and making news about it. And because the sport is not protected, it's not like you can, you know, rely on the, the union to be like, hey, shut up. We can't talk about that. I mean, it's goofy. And, in, in, you know, NFL, there's a player who serves a suspension. And is that on the Pro Bowl team two weeks later? So. No, yeah. I mean, it's super frustrating that, I mean, in some aspects, yeah, cycling has been really proactive compared to other sports. And they get penalized with the stigma of it. But, mm-hmm. um, some of it's deserved, some of it's not. I mean, yeah, you look at some of the other pro- professional sports, and it's, um, I mean, yeah, it's entertainment when you Bingo. look at it. <laughs> Plain and simple, that's it. Uh, all right, jumping to a modern era. How do you, outside of a global pandemic year, because you're so multidisciplined in all the stuff you do, like, how do you pick a schedule for the, for the fi- forthcoming year? Do you know it well in advance, or do you just sort of spitball last minute to pick events? Uh, I mean, I have a lot of freedom. I mean, this is, uh, after 2016, I've been running my own program Mm -hmm. and for sure there's, I mean, I'm just, I think definitely I was lucky. I mean, I thought for sure, you know, I used to look at my career in Olympic cycles that, you know, maybe I'd be able to race through 2012, 2016, but yeah, lucky the, sports really evolved and I was always, I mean, yeah, growing up in BC, I had those skills. So had a pretty diverse skill set and always started exploring some of those other events. Like in 2012, 2013, I went to this, uh, six day enduro just cause I wanted to called Transfervance. Still one of the coolest events. Went back this summer, kind of a six day campground, a campground enduro through the maritime Alps in Southern France. And I mean, I always raced cross just cause it was fun. And, mm-hmm. uh, a way to, you know, get some media when there wasn't much else going on. And anyway, I was able to, I mean, I've been able to transition to a lot of fun events. And as my career has transitioned, a lot of the sponsorship and media focus has transitioned, which has been really amazing. Now, like BC Bike Race, which I never had time to do, is one of the main focal points for marketing in North America for um, mountain bike industry and the epic rides, the 50 milers. And, but I mean, yeah, I just kind of look at the schedule, what, what kind of fits my skill set and where the media coverage is and where I can have some success and, mm-hmm. you know, provide some value for my sponsors. Sometimes I get suckered into going to events like Dirty Kanza because, <laughs> yeah. Sponsors are really into this gravel thing. Uh-huh. And so, I mean, made, I mean, I had a ton of fun out there, made the most of my time, uh, had some good times, but wasn't on my schedule this year. So, no way uh, for real. You weren't planning to do it. 
No, I mean, it just took too much out of me. And in the end, it actually being a scheduled conflict with the Grand Junction off-road, which is a, uh, one of the really fun, technical, epic rides events. So I was going to do that instead and do do Lost and Found, uh-huh. uh, which is close to here. Which, yeah. But yeah, I mean, everything's gone and I'm pretty 50-50 if we'll do anything this year, but uh, we'll see. Um, That's the truth. But I mean, I'm just thankful I'm not like in the the height of my career where I was gearing up for Olympics because it's been really hard mentally for those athletes to kind of readjust. But uh, Mm -hmm. I can't complain. I mean, um, yeah, it's a bit of an adjustment, but uh, I'm just trying to, I mean, a bit more diverse as an athlete right now, luckily. So trying to just uh, provide value where I can for sponsors doing some some testing, product development, working on my YouTubing and whatever. We need more ideas like cross training videos. We need like the the, the gravel equivalent. Um, I mean, you sort of summed up the final handful of questions. It was it was going to be like, would you ever picture doing what you're doing now, or or like talking about modern cycling? It's it's funny because to me, gravel is it's very forward driven by what people seemingly want to do in the migration to just be like, all right, yeah, we'll do some competition, but also just chill out and we're, we're riding for this beer or whatever. At the same time, the industry has gotten behind it. And that's why three years ago, the expo at dirty Kansas was whatever 20 vendors and this year it's 200. Um, so it's, it's an interesting time in the sport that's driven both by, by, you know, the groundswell of support and then by the industry itself. Um, and it's funny because the whole sport's fluid, right? Like what we see now is certainly not what it's going to be in three years. It's not what it was three years ago. So, yeah, I mean, that's like, like I said, I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll be able to ride till my mid to late thirties, but I don't want to be like that sad old guy just hanging on. But at some point I was like, why do I, I mean, I still love riding my bike and it's, I mean, I'm four, just turned 43. And I, I think we're I mean, near 41, man. <laughs> so, I was still, still can find success here and there. I mean, it's hard to keep up with the young guys, but it's, it's fun giving it to, giving it to the young guys, rubbing it in that they got beat by an old masters guy. Uh-huh. But I mean, I definitely explored, I mean, you know, my 30s, I thought, you know, there's going to be a timeline in my career. And so I explored getting involved in like a sports center in BC, but it was just too hard to balance it when I was focused hundred percent on racing and, um, just realized why not just keep focusing on what I'm doing. I'm doing well. And like I said, just, I think just lucky that the sports evolved and still have some, you know, Luckily, I've had, I mean, been racing forever, so I have some really good relationships with, with the sponsors that support me and can keep kind of evolving how I can provide value. And yeah, I mean, like right now, just trying to, you know, take the time to kind of share some of the knowledge that I've kind of gained over the last 25 years and find ways. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely been a challenge. I mean, I miss miss the old days when, you know, I'd go to a bike race and then just go back home for the winter and ride mm-hmm. my bike and that was it and then show up at the next race in the spring so it's definitely a challenge to evolve as an athlete but kind of embrace that 
Mm -hmm. It's always fun to keep on learning when I'm, you know, when I started my own program, it was definitely a challenge to get everything up and running, learning how to design my own website, whatever, and build those relationships directly. And, um, I mean, I'm my own mechanic now. I was just in the garage, you know, swapping shifter brakes, bleeding. I've always been interested in bikes and I mean, just still really enjoy riding my bike. I mean, yeah, gravel is popular and super fun to the bikes we get to ride these days and what they can do. And, uh, I mean, yeah, it's kind of like my hashtag keep riding until the fun stops. But yeah, why, why do I need to stop if I'm still having fun? So I got, mm-hmm. got another couple of years of contracts and just try not to plan beyond that and just see what happens. So life, life is great right now and can't complain even considering the circumstances. Well said, man. I think that it comes with the perspective over the past 20 years, 25 years to, to certainly not be anxious. I mean, I talked to Leah Davison, who's towards the end of her career. She's a two-time Olympian. But yeah, she's in Olympic gear. And like, how do you prep for that? And, and yeah, it's nice to have the perspective and be able to chill out and, and relax a little bit. So that is outstanding. Keep on going. Keep on riding until the fun stops. That is pure poetic <laughs> bliss there, Jeff. All right, we're going to wrap with three questions. All right. You are a world traveler. You have ridden your bike in a lot of places. One, what is your favorite place to ride a bike? Two, what is the number one place you would like to ride a bike that you've never ridden? With the qualifier that you've just recently ridden in the Himalayas. So, like, you you ride your bike everywhere. <laughs> and then number three, living or otherwise, with whom would you like to go for a bike ride? Well, for sure... I mean, my favorite spot to ride is in BC being a mountain biker. I mean, I just so lucky. Um, Hornby Island is where we have a family cabin and that's kind of, it's just emotionally like, uh, really sentimental place for me, uh, where I kind of, there's a little mountain. It's not like it's super crazy, but just super fun XE trails some beautiful sandy beaches. We have a cabin on the water where you can, walk down the beach and pick up oysters and, uh, heaven, a lot of, uh, it's like a special place. I always go there for a week now after BC, BC bike race, just to relax and recover or try to make it over there in the fall. So, I mean, everywhere in BC is just amazing trails and dirt. I definitely miss the dirt being down here in Mm -hmm. California. So it's fun to go back and ride there, man, places I'd, I'd like to ride. I mean, I mean, it's still, I have like a super busy schedule, but I think there's just so many places in BC that I haven't got to visit. I love to spend, uh, the summer, you know, traveling around and riding interior BC. Like, man, I used to race there, but I haven't ridden there in 20 years. And that's what's so cool. I mean, it's part of the tourism there. So even like in Squamish where I'm based in Canada now, every time I go back, there's so much new trail work. Uh, such huge investment by the communities and trail networks. So I just feel like, man, there's still so many places in BC that I haven't got to to ride and and visit for so long. And That's love to so go back cool. and see what see nice. what's happening. Um, but I mean, ride with uh, probably Johnny T. John Tomac. He was oh, like my legend. Yeah, I mean, when I started. 
he was definitely like one of my idols along with a bunch of the top guys. And uh-huh. I still remember he was like at the end of his career. I don't know what year it was, probably 97. There was like a Norba national up in Washington state. And I don't know, got to like ride one of the, I was kind of racing with him probably in the thirties. And I remember riding one of the descents with him and just the roar, roar of the cloud, the crowd was just insane. That's uh, wild. So, I mean, I definitely follow his, um, Eli, his son now. And, uh, actually got, got Payson to ask him in a podcast when he's going to come and do BCBR. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great podcast. Um, so he used to be a Yeti rider too. So it'd be super fun to yeah. get him out and do an event or something. But yeah, I just really, I mean, respected him and then even more, I mean, wanted to you know believe in him as a rider and uh, there's like a a bell video promo video about where he talked about his career and making the right choices in sport and mm-hmm. that made him made me respect him even more but he was just yeah such an all-around diverse rider it'd be really fun to go out, be able to ride with him someday nice i dig it um you know you were talking about you know you don't want to be the old guy riding like past your prime and yada, 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 backtrack 10 minutes when you were talking about that. Ned Overend is, is somebody that you might think like, man, like why doesn't he just stop riding? And then you listen to that podcast, um, between he and, and Payson and John Tomac. And like, I just, I love everything he says. Like he's just still completely in love with riding a bike. He does it for the right reasons. He has a good time. He's obviously fit as a freaking fiddle. And I just, I, I, I really enjoyed that conversation. Not to mention everything that you get from, from Tomac, who's just legend in so many ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I got into cycling because I was a, you know, a bike dork and love the equipment. And uh-huh. I mean, yeah, still like living the dry. I used to like, remember going to races with my friends, like, oh, imagine if we could, you know, get just paid to go to races all our expenses it wouldn't cost us every anything and uh-huh. i mean yeah what am i 25 30 years later after that and i mean i still love you know getting and but got a bunch of new bikes in the mm-hmm. garage to build up and still love to geek out and see the new stuff and i mean yeah bikes are pretty amazing these days so um really enjoying it still sick now normally i'd wrap up but one thing I was trying to do for homework here is I feel like I hope I, I hope my memory serves me correctly. I feel like if I was flipping through a magazine in the early 2000s, maybe late 2000s, there was an ad with you, perhaps with Maxis, with I'm picturing like really dark ad. There's like neon lights everywhere, and you have a bike on one side, and then did you have like a Maxis van with some massive Maxis tires on the van or truck? There was a, they did a promo crossover promo between Max of Maxis auto and the bike. It was actually an Audi wagon had at the time okay. that we shot. Yeah. With all the, there's a bunch of lights like under the car, under the car. And, and are you like kinda, crouched down next to it? I'm like standing next to it. And there's a guy pretending to steal my bike in the background running away. Like, yeah, circa 2005. But okay, I do you have, have my, I have, have my old DW bus with Max's tires on it now. Oh, right which is on. Pretty fun to pull out. Hopefully, I get to drive it this summer. Let's That's see. outstanding. Um, 
your homework assignment, should you choose to accept it, is to try to find that ad because I Googled every iteration of Jeff Kabush, Max's tire, car, van, print ad, lasers. I couldn't find it for the life of me. And then I'm like, Google image has got to have it, but it's just not there. I was just I was just looking through like a folder on my computer with all my old ads. I, I can, well, oh, I can nice. send it. Send that over. Dude, that'd be perfect. <laughs> Very good man. Jeff did his homework. Don't forget to head over to YouTube, the Ted King channel, to see to see Jeff's homework at the end of this episode, to see the extra bits of movie magic, see him go head-to-head against Yao Ming, see him in the absolutely legendary cyclocross training video where he takes on the role of Coach K. Folks, this episode was good as a pod. It is outstanding as a video cast. So thank you, Jeff, for taking the time. You and I have had a handful of near misses at events trying to sit down and do this pod, so apparently it takes a global pandemic to find the time to do it. Really appreciate it. You, our fair listener, I appreciate you. Give this podcast a positive rating if you're feeling generous. Hit subscribe, truly, it means a lot. That same goes with the videos, hitting subscribe button. It works wonders on the YouTube machine. Folks, don't forget to head over to IamTedKing slash DIY Gravel. Join the community, join the fun. That is all from here. That's all for now. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time. Please enjoy the ride.